Hey, welcome back to She Speaks Life. I have big news coming over the weekend. So if you don't follow me on socials yet, this would be a great time to do so. Go to Jamie Elizabeth, She Speaks Life on Instagram and YouTube. And I can't wait to show you what God has downloaded on my heart to create just for you. Okay, today I have with me Melissa Johnson. Her book, Soul Deep Beauty, Fighting for Our True Worth in a World Demanding Flawless, uncovers the cultural lies about beauty that can damage our minds. We talk about how to reconnect with God and remember we were made in His image and what that means for you and I. We also touch on points of shame, striving, and the biblical approach to loving ourselves, not the world's version of self-love. You guys, this is such a great conversation. So let's get right to it. Here's my guest, Melissa Johnson. Hey, Melissa, welcome to She Speaks Life. I am so happy you are here with us today. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's such a privilege to be here. Yeah, you are an incredible author of Soul Deep Beauty, fighting for our true worth in a world demanding flawless. And isn't that true? And we're going to be talking about uncovering the cultural uh, lies about beauty that can be so damaging to our minds and souls and how to reconnect with God and remind ourselves that we were made in his image. And we're going to cover shame and striving and biblically loving ourselves and others. It's going to be so good. But before we dive deeper, I would love for you to share your favorite scripture verse and why. So Jamie, it's honestly really hard to fight, to like land on my favorite. Um, yeah. I get but, that a lot, by the way. I, I, I <laughs> imagine. Like, yeah, I have a lot. Yeah. So kind of pertaining to the things we're going to be talking about today, the verse that continues to come to mind is John 10, 10. And it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what I love about that verse is just this idea that how God invites us into this thriving life, like the wholeness in the wholeness of who we are. And um, yeah, Jesus came to bring us this, this true humanity, this living life fully and deeply as uh, we were, we were originally created. Yeah. Amen. And so we're going to be talking about beauty here and how we unfortunately uh, are ingrained from a young age to view this corrupt beauty standard that our culture pushes on us today. And if we buy into it, then this creates uh, this body shame and maybe possibly eating disorders that we see women struggle with. And I know in your story, you had struggled with that also. Would you be able to share your story here with us on that? Yeah, definitely. So I think the interesting part about my story is that I actually didn't realize that I was struggling with these things because it's the struggles that I was having, the thoughts that I was thinking, the beliefs that I was living out of, I have become so culturally normalized. And so... Mm. That's like looking back at my own story, I feel like that is especially remarkable. Um, but yeah, so I can say a little bit about my own story. So 
I think it's about like eight or nine years ago now, I was working as a marriage and family therapist and also seeing my own therapist. And at that point, she invited me to do some more intensive work around my relationship with food, exercise, and my body. Specifically, she was naming it an eating disorder, which was honestly, it came as a surprise to me. I knew that I perhaps had a um, maybe some obsessive ideas and like routines when it came to food and exercise, but I had never considered that it would actually be labeled an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And she actually said it was to the point where I needed intensive eating disorder treatment. And so I talk about this in the book, but it took me a little bit of time to get on board with this idea and to even believe mm-hmm. again that this was an eating disorder. Um, and eventually what happened is I had to pause my work as a therapist and dug into intensive eating disorder work for about a year or so, um, nine to 12 months, given, give or take, um, mm-hmm. some weeks or something. But, um, what ended up happening for me in the midst of my intensive, uh, treatment journey is I started to see that the ideas, the beliefs, the behaviors that I was seeing in the group therapy rooms were actually beliefs and ideas that, my friends, my peers, the broader culture was teaching us and believing in. And mm-hmm. um, there was just so much disorder when it came to what I had learned about beauty, about my body, about food from the larger culture, from diet and beauty culture. And I started to see that this wasn't just something that you know people with eating disorders struggle with. I started to see that these messages around food, exercise, and body were actually suffocating the souls and the minds of women and girls everywhere, I would say, anyone who's been exposed to westernized beauty culture. Um, And so from there, I started this Impossible Beauty platform, which is all about redefining beauty as the life of God at work in us and among us. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a journey to get to that definition. Uh, However, I have learned and written now about it in Soul Deep Beauty about why I believe that kind of beauty is actually worth our time, our energy, and even our lives. Yeah, so good. I love your message. So let's go back historically. How do you think the American beauty standard originated and how does it take advantage of women's insecurities? What do you think? Yes. Um, And this is such a uh, there's, there's such a robust answer here because I think there are numerous streams that that play into this, mm-hmm. uh, and so I talk about numerous streams in the in the book. However, one that has especially caught my attention more more so lately, and I talk a little bit about this in the book as well, is the role that advertising um, and the proliferation of flawless images, um, mm-hmm. quote flawless images, have to. Uh, have played in this, uh, making this flawless ideal, uh, more and more impactful for women. So back in the 1920s, 1930s, there was this shift that we saw in advertising where previous to that, a product was basically sold to you by virtue of like logic, like this shampoo cleans better than the other shampoos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas what happened in the 1920s, 1930s, there was this shift to taking a look actually at our um, unconscious desires and unconscious um, insecurities. And this shift actually came to us from who is now coined the father of modern marketing. His name is Edward Bernays. He's actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And so of course he was well-versed in this idea of, um, of a, 
subconscious desires. And so what began to happen then is there was this shift in, in marketing where marketers, corporations started to play to our insecurities. And for instance, like a product would become a symbol of something like all of a sudden a car is a symbol of freedom or um, deodorant becomes a symbol of like being des a desirable woman. And so what has happened in, I, I would say, our culture now uh, is there is this tie between our our worth and our image. And I have seen how actually advertisers and marketers use shame to sell products. And what I've seen and learned is I believe that our deepest desires desire as humans is to be deeply known and deeply loved. And so what shame does is it goes to the heart of that desire and it says like, no, you, you actually aren't worthy of that. And so I feel like it goes to the deepest lie of, of what God says about us, that we are loved. And then marketers and corporations use shame to sell us products. Like you aren't good enough because you have X, Y, or Z about your body, you know, cellulite or something, um, or your body isn't small enough or your face needs less wrinkles. And so one part of this, I think, is starting to uncover media's agenda um, to sell products based on shaming us, essentially. And so I think that that is one thing. Certain images are used to sell products. But also I think with um, the rise of social media, as well as things like filters, um, and I, I think there's this um, proliferation of, quote, the flawless image, flawless beauty. Mm -hmm. And uh so I don't know if you remember this, but like back in the day with print media, you know, like magazines, we knew that that images were likely, you know, airbrushed or photoshopped. But that is now like every, any image we look at, there is a high percentage, almost mm -hmm. guarantee that it has been messed with in some way. And yeah, some little touch up. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so it's not just celebrities anymore. It's not just mm -hmm. models. It is our own image. It is mm -hmm. our best friend's image. It is as we scroll through social media and maybe even any kind of internet, um, you know, whether we're reading something, there are going to be ads there where we are like drowning our neural networks in quote, flawless beauty or fake beauty. And mm -hmm. so I think that this idea of, uh, of thinness as well as being kind of upheld with health and morality that has come to us from a long history of diet culture and upholding the thin ideal as um, this something to strive for at any cost. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, there's so many streams here, but some of that I have named are advertising, social media, um, and, and diet culture as well. I think that those yeah. are some really big influences. So good. You're bringing awareness to things that unfortunately I've normalized, right? Where I yes. can't even point it out and observe it. But, you know, because you're, you're living out this message, this is essentially important to you. It hits home, then you're well aware of it, which is great because then you're passing it on to us and pointing mm -hmm. out the, the ways that culture is, uh, 
really preying on our insecurities to look a certain way or buy this product. And that's so good. Okay, let's uh, dive into some statistics. You had stated in your book of February of 2023, it was reported that three in five U.S. teen girls felt persistently sad and hopeless in 2021. And this is double the rate for boys, and it has increased over 60% uh, in the last decade. So sad. And I know as a therapist, you uh, are marriage and family therapist, so I'm sure you get these young girls. So what role do you see shame playing for these girls, and how does it affect their self-esteem as they mature and grow? Yeah, and I think... I think that, you know, we, I can't say that there is a direct cause, but I think we can make some guesses that this is likely uh, in like impacting mental health. Um, right. And especially when we think about um, the, our inundation, again, of, of social media, um, mm-hmm. to give us a couple statistics, additional statistics, we know that 80% of girls have used an app to change their appearance before the age of 13. And girls ages 10 to 17 were found to spend five hours on social media every day. So when we think back to what we were just talking about, this idea of we're literally inundated with fake, flawless beauty. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the inundation of it, five hours a day on social media, like I, someone had used the, the phrase uh, being discipled by social media the other day, and I just can't get it out of my head. We are... I think what's what's happening likely is there is likely this comparison that happens between these yes. flawless images that are really just we're being brainwashed with and these young women are being brainwashed with. And of course, it's eliciting feelings of of shame, of not being good enough, of not being perfect enough. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's also this lie about like, quote, the, the beautiful or perfect life, you know, what, what we see about um, people taking pictures and uh, idealistic looking settings or um, gatherings. And so between this this lie of of what true beauty looks like, um, I think they're, they're just in so many ways, young girls are believing that what they're doing, who they are, what they look like is not enough. And so I think that that is having a dramatic impact on, on mental health. But then also I'm thinking about the uh, the addictive nature of it as well. And so Mm -hmm. the more time spent there, um, likely the more addicted you become and then likely the more isolated you are as well. Um, and so you're not likely going out, um, perhaps to, to do some of the communal things that, uh, generations past did. Um, so, so those are just some, some ideas when it comes to mental health. Oh, we also know that the longer, Mm -hmm. the more time you spend on social media, um, the more likely you are to feel worse about yourself and your body. So we know that from research as well. Uh, So yeah, those are likely some things that are impacting young girls' Mm -hmm. mental health. So let's talk more on harmful beauty ideologies, this quote unquote thin ideal. How crucial is it to talk to these young women? I know you touched on it a little bit about these toxic beauty standards. What I really would love young women to know is that so much of what we're looking at is is literally fake. Um, also, we have some statistics like the average model would be considered 20% underweight, um, whereas in the previous, so DSM-4, Diagnostic um, 
manual for like diagnosing mental illness, we knew that in order, one of the diagnostic criterion for diagnosing anorexia was you have to be 15% underweight. And so these uh, models, your average model would be 20% underweight. So meeting anorexic uh, diagnostic criterion for uh, anorexia and then some. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at um, some of those idealized images of, of beauty, there is this, uh, this thin ideal that is, uh, is being kind of shoved down our throats in that way. But also when we have a lot of times when we look at, um, images for different marketing images, et cetera, like people, like parts of maybe, you know, a whole section of someone's body will have been removed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, even I, I saw something, I won't name there. There are some influencers I've seen who are doing that on their images as well. And so um, there is this this thin ideal that is, you know, I, I think that it is deeply impacting us. And uh, in in still, and I think you know, some people argue that perhaps because we're having more diversity in some areas, like more um, diverse body shapes, I think that largely the images that we're looking at are still. Uh, unrealistically thin. And then of course, young women are thinking and believing that they should look like that. They need to look like that to be, um, to be, I guess, desired by, by men um, to be desirable at all. Yeah, I know. It's so sad. And to see women, young girls going through plastic surgery too, to uh, become a certain shape um, at such a young age. Uh, it's really sad. Okay. You cover judgment in your book and how does judging ourselves bleed into judging others? I thought this was such a great thing that you covered. Yeah, no, thank you. And this is something that, I mean, when I, when I talk about it and say it now, I'm like, Oh, that's totally makes sense. Like, why didn't I think of that before? Yeah. But what I realized through my own journey is I had become such a harsh critic of myself, like in Mm. every way from looks to everything. And I started to realize that like, that's actually the same brain, the same lens that I'm using to look outward toward Mm -hmm. other people, you know? And I I started to think about how Jesus invites us to love others as we love ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I started to see, oh, wow, there was this correlation. I, in how I looked at myself and judged myself and then how I would view other people. And so Mm -hmm. from there, I started to realize the wisdom of Mm self-compassion, looking at myself with kindness, knowing that when I started to do that, I would then treat humanity or other people out of that same compassionate, kind lens. And so that has been part of this work as well that I actually think is pivotal to to being less harsh with ourselves, less critical. Um, and I think that that is such, because I think that's such a cultural thing as well, because without us being harsh and critical, um, you know, we we actually feel like we're maybe okay how we are. And so we might not yes. buy a product to try to to improve ourselves. Right. Yeah. And it shows like if we have grace for ourselves, we're going to extend grace to others, right? So if we're okay with our bodies and yeah, it's not perfect, but God made me who I am. And, and, um, you know, when we walk and carry that out, then we're going to exude that in others around us, our friends, our community, and we're not going to be nitpicking at other people and, 
you know, their shapes or how they look and all of that. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, let's talk about our relationship with food and our bodies. How can we change that due to this cultural standard of beauty and worth? Because I know you talk about a lot how that ties in together, like you said before. Yes. Um, and I was just pulling up this this diet culture definition because I think it's so helpful. I, I want to go ahead and just state this definition of diet culture given to us by Christy Harrison, who's a an author. She wrote Anti-Diet and also uh, The Wellness Trap and does the popular food psych um, podcast. But she also is a registered dietitian and journalist. So this is her definition of diet culture. She says, it's a system of beliefs that equates thinness muscularity, and particular body shapes with health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status, demonizes certain foods and food groups while elevating others, and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health. Mm. By and large, Western culture is diet culture. Mm. This way of thinking about food and bodies is so embedded in the fabric of our society in so many different forms that it can be hard to recognize it masquerades as health, wellness, and fitness. Mm -hmm. And so what I have found to be incredibly helpful myself is starting to see diet culture for what it is. And again, I think this is just so the, the water we swim in. Like she said, Western culture is diet culture. Mm -hmm. um, and because we know diet culture is really, really so um, marketable. It, if we can make people feel like they're their bodies aren't good enough and sell them a diet or a diet pill or um, some kind of workout contraption. Of course, we're going to make tons of money. Um, and so what has happened is I think this is the air we breathe promoting this, uh, this thin ideal um, with things like moral virtue, health, et cetera. And so one way I think we move toward healing that relationship with food in our bodies is becoming aware of diet culture messaging in our culture. And so that's one of the things that I try to start to do in the book is raise awareness of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and also starting to see when it's actually not about health. Oftentimes what we're being sold, it actually is about making money off of our, again, shame or um, mm -hmm. fear, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to diet culture, I think used to look a lot like, um, you, you could tell it, you know, a mile away, Jenny Craig or, or Weight Watchers. We knew that that was a diet. However, nowadays it's warped, um, or kind of morphed, I should say more so into this wellness culture. It's not a diet. It's about wellness. Um, and so the reason why that happened is because it started to come out that actually traditional diets weren't so weren't quote successful. In fact, we were seeing failure rates. Um, and I don't like even saying failure rates. Um, but this is how it's reported of, um, 95% or higher where people regained the weight or regained the weight and then some. And so of course the diet culture had to do some rebranding and now we're seeing things like supplements and, um, you know, it's not a, it's a food plan. And so, so I think becoming savvy to some of those, um, those pieces of diet culture so that we can actually start to move toward healing our relationship with food. And, um, some things that, some ways that that can look like is not classifying foods as good or bad, because oftentimes when we do that, if we eat something on the quote bad list, we will then, um, moralize ourselves and feel shame around it. And that's actually not helpful for our overall health. Um, mm. and then, um, another thing, another 
piece that we see with uh, diet culture promoting disordered relationship with food would be like restricting certain food groups. Um, and we see this oftentimes, like every, I feel like every decade has like the demonized food, like maybe years ago, like in the, maybe it's like the nineties, it was like fat was bad. So everything was low fat. Now it's, now like, it's like eat fat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. And now it's like right. gluten is the devil. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, if you have celiac, of course, honor that, you know, but um, just to show that there are some, uh, you, you know, I think that we can become a little bit more savvy around the messages we're getting around food. And I know it can be so, so tricky. Um, and so one of the guides that I found to be really helpful has been um, intuitive eating. And there is a handbook by uh, Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli. And heads up, Diet culture has um, sometimes taken intuitive eating and made that into a diet. However, the original handbook is um, is kind of the I, I would go by the original handbook. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when it comes to our bodies, I think we can start to offer our bodies kindness and gratitude, and really work on not critiquing our bodies and not critiquing the bodies of others. There's this sociocultural term called fat talk which is where women bond over um, their own perceived uh, like flaws about their own bodies. Like you'll see this if like one woman A says, ah, oh, I can't believe this, my body, I, this part about my body, then women B will try to make her feel better and say, oh, you think that's bad. You should look at my X, Y, or Z. Oh, and so right. what we do is we try to make, you, make um, one another feel better and normalize these things. But what ends up happening is we end up um, – perpetuating this negative dialogue about our bodies. Whereas instead, mm -hmm. perhaps we could start fun uh, start focusing on things like how strong our bodies are, mm -hmm. the functioning of our bodies. Like since we started this interview, think about how many breaths I've taken or you've taken or how many times our hearts have um, actually continued to beat with us doing nothing. Like our bodies are miraculous and amazing, but how much time do we actually spend um, thinking about that? Mm -hmm. um, and so we can change the dialogue about our bodies internally and within and between um, our in our female groups. Um, I'll say one last thing about this is this idea of embodiment when it comes to our bodies. And oftentimes what we've learned to we've learned to think about our bodies from like a third party perspective. So like, for instance, I'm looking at my Instagram reel and I'm looking at my body um, from an external perspective and oftentimes leading to critique, like, oh, I should have done this or I didn't, whatever, <laughs> bad angle or mm. X, mm. Y, or Z. Um, however, but what embodiment invites us to do is actually focus on the awareness of being a body, like living in my body and noticing, for instance, like what happens when I experience joy? Like maybe I feel butterflies in my stomach or maybe my heart beats a little bit faster. Um, and starting to just focus on living in my body and the goodness and the good experiences. Like maybe I feel so exhilarated when I go for a hike or mm -hmm. um, start living from a place of embodiment versus looking, um, being this outside observer of our bodies. Yeah, that's good. So basically intentionally recognizing how you feel. Yes, yes, right? exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Taking that moment and going, oh, like I'm feeling joyful or this is exciting. And because I think subconsciously we can just let that go by and we're not ultimately thinking about how we feel in a situation. And so I wanted to dive into uh, back into the eating disorder and 
we all know that affects your physical body, but how does it affect your, your mental and even your spirituality as well? Your relationship with Christ. Yeah. Something that I didn't realize was until I actually started getting the nutrients that I needed or the nutrition that was needed is how much nutrition impacts the brain. Like I was able to think so much more clearly. I felt like I had like a brain superpower or something because I had just been so out of it um, from being not nourishing my brain. And so I think there is such a, a, a cognitive impact on our, our brains, but also our emotions as well. You know, I think we need we need food and nutrients in order for a uh, proper neuro uh, neurotransmitter balance. And mm-hmm. so there is a huge impact on our minds when it comes to, uh, you know, eating enough uh, nutritionally. But then also my relationship with God, what I didn't realize was how disconnected I had actually become um, in my bo- from my body. I, you know, oftentimes I would, I would be feeling hungry, but I learned that uh, that was actually counter to the demands of the eating disorder. So I started to numb out from a lot of my body cues. However, during recovery, what I started to do is reintegrate my relationship um, with my body. And I started to notice like, oh, I'm hungry. Okay. That means that I probably need to eat something. But what I didn't realize was how actually God communicates to me in and through my body. For instance, um, that still small voice of God, oftentimes the, the cues of that are in my body. And I had not made that connection previously. And so as the light started to turn on and I started to get the nutrients that I needed, not only did I feel like God was using my, my brain and I was starting to see how God um, you know, was in the midst of my thought life. And I was just, my, my mind started to light up in ways that it hadn't in years, but then also experiencing life in, in kind of 3D uh, or technicolor, as I talk about in the book, just I was able to actually experience life um, in the fullness of, of who I was, including my body and, and how God uh, even speaks to me uh, in the midst of, of my, my sensory input in my body. So good. Okay. So some women I know feel like maybe God is critiquing or mm. judging. I know we talked about judging ourselves and uh, judging others. And you mentioned in this book that you gained this new perspective of God during mm. your own treatment. Uh, could you yeah. expand on that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That was one of the tricky things. I, I think oftentimes so I grew up in the church and Whenever things like body image or eating disorders were were spoken about, I shouldn't say whenever. I'll say numerous occasions that really <laughs> that stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, was that um, people? I got the message of like, yeah, you shouldn't think about those things because that's idolatry. Period. And so I had this sense of like these struggles that I had with food and exercise were were nothing that God was really interested in, and at, at best in like best case scenario and worst case scenario, this was bad. And I, he didn't want anything to do with that part of my life. And so what I talk about in the book is that I felt like I was on this leading this life uh, on parallel tracks. Like on one track, I was trying to be a a Christian, a good Christian. And then on the other track, I was um, trying to follow the rules of the eating disorder. However, I had no idea like how they integrated, um, how they communicated with each other. However, uh, at one point in 
treatment, I so I should also say simultaneously, I was getting a, a degree in spiritual uh, formation. And so in the, and during the day, I would go to my um, my programming for intensive eating disorder treatment. And then in the evening, I would do my coursework for um, spiritual formation. And during one of these, uh, we had an intensives that I had to go to. Um, and I'm, I'm laughing at myself because I, I recognize I, I did do a lot of discernment around like, should I be doing these two things at the same time? Um, but they actually ended up informing each other in really significant ways. And this is one of the, the instances of that. Um, so during one of these intensive sessions for um, spiritual formation, I, I was invited into this prayer experience. And during that time, I, I did offer with my prayer partner, um, though I was uh, hesitant at first to actually tell her what I was struggling with. Um, she invited me to envision the faith, face of Jesus. And um, what came to me in the midst of that experience was just this deep sense and this deep knowing. Um, I actually felt like I envisioned like the compassionate eyes of Jesus. And it was like this deep knowing, like he knew where I've been. He saw the struggle and there was no judgment like at all. It was just this deep sense of compassion and empathy. And like, I know, like I, I see it. I see where you've been um, and I'm in it with you. And so that withness and that presence of this compassionate, empathic, knowing presence of like, I'm with you and we're going to, we're going to work on this together. Mm -hmm. That like shifted something deep within me mm -hmm. and helped me to see that, that God was on my side and mm -hmm. never was judging me in the way that I thought he was. Um, and so for me, that was a, a really significant shift. Mm, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. So I always think of shame comes barreling in when we can't separate what we've done mm -hmm. or what even has been done to us where it's yeah. not even our fault from defining who we are. Like we can't separate that. We're, we're combining that and we're defining ourselves by what we've done in the past or what has been done to us. But what advice could you give for those suffering, those mm -hmm. shameful thoughts, you know, uh, body shame and or who are frustrated with God because of their bodies? Mm. Either one. I, I think that that body frustration oftentimes, yeah, shame can be such a part of that. It, for, for someone who's maybe struggling with body shame in particular, something that's been really helpful for me is um, actually trying to envision what is God's love and acceptance for me look like? What does it feel like? Um, and maybe having this be like a, a prayer practice or a, a, in a time, a quiet time, like God, give me, um, give me some words or give me a, an image. What does your love, your acceptance look like? Um, and, and trying to bask in that and embody the, the feeling that that felt sense of love, feeling mm -hmm. that in, in your body, because what we know is shame is embodied. Um, we feel shame maybe with a pit in your stomach or, you know, maybe sweaty hands. We all have some different signs of when our shame gets triggered. However, I do think that love and grace can be an embodied experience or it is an embodied experience as well. So God, what, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it sound like for your grace to speak louder than the shame? Yeah, so good. And 
we all know like the ultimate healing is what Jesus did on the cross for us. He took our shame. We, you know, nailed it to the cross. And once we really get that ground, like roots in, you know, of what Jesus had already done on the cross that he forgives and he's taken our shame and it's done. There's one thing of reading something, believing it on the, on the page, but then to have that, what you were talking about, that experience, that encounter with, with the Lord and actually going, okay, like, I don't need to be shameful. Jesus had already taken it all on the cross. And, you know, if we ever feel that shame come creeping in, we just get to nail it back on the cross. You know, he takes care of it. That's what he did for us. And, you know, there's, there's so much to be said about what Jesus did on the cross. I love that. It's our free gift, our grace that is undeserving, unmerited, and just this, free thing that we get to take and live it out. And so I would love for us to finish with a great takeaway for our listener, our friend here, so she can ponder on it or take action in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize. It's going to be two parts. Um, okay. The, the first part, the first takeaway is I would invite listeners to start to uncover these lies around beauty. And the reason why I invite people to do that first is because I think they're so like, I think the enemy is in the midst of this. And I think those lies are so savvy and he's so savvy to lead us astray. And so that's why I think awareness is so important. And that's why I spent time on it in the book. But then part two is to start noticing where true beauty is in the midst of like where you are right now. And again, the definition I'm giving true beauty is the life of God at work in us and among us. And I think without that first part of seeing that cultural societal beauty is actually a dead end I think it starts to then take pull back the blinders a little bit on how truly beautiful authentic beauty is and how it actually leads us into a life of thriving versus striving and shame like cultural beauty so good all right where can people connect with you and get your book soul deep beauty yeah. So my podcast and website is called Impossible Beauty. And so it's impossible-beauty.com. Um, and so there you'll see a, a tab at the top to, to purchase the book, but it's basically available wherever books are sold. Um, and then I think I think Baker Bookhouse right now is actually running a, a sale on it. So heads up on that. Um, with with, um, with I think you can do the code SOUL, S-O-U-L. Um, and then otherwise, you can find me at the Impossible Beauty Podcast and on my website and on Instagram at melissa.louise.johnson and at impossible.beauty. Thank you so much for listening today. And I trust that God has encouraged you through this story. Did you know this podcast is on YouTube? Hop on there and subscribe and you can see a live recording of each episode. And for more information on this ministry and to access free downloads, please visit my website at jamieelizabeth.com. That's J-A-Y-M-E elizabeth.com. And let's connect beyond this podcast by going to my Instagram handle, Jamie Elizabeth, She Speaks Life, or Facebook. Until next time, my friend, I hope God reveals himself through your own life story.